Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace City Online. My name is David Hederman. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us and being a part of our community this morning. Today, we're going to be wrapping up our series, Citizen, God, Politics, and You. For the past couple of weeks, we've been trying to answer this question, how do we live, first and foremost, as citizens of the kingdom of God, and then as a citizen of these United States? Because we get in trouble when we forget that order. We get in trouble when we let our, our, our involvement in the political process or our loyalty to a party, to a candidate, to a political platform, when we let that loyalty supersede our loyalty to Christ and the calling of his kingdom. And so this series has been aimed at trying to help us as a church remember uh, the, that our primary call, our, our main function, our, our, our one aim is to live as disciples of Christ, to steward his gospel, and to be messengers of the hope of his kingdom. And so that's what this series has been trying to help us address and stay mindful of during this election season. Now, I made a promise to you week one that I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. And I stand by that. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but today... I am going to tell you how to vote on Tuesday. I am. I'm going to tell you how to vote on Tuesday because I believe Scripture is clear of of what and who should guide our actions when we go into the voting booth. And to that that aim, I believe uh, that Scripture does tell us how to vote, what should be our thought process, what or who should uh, guide our, our, our thoughts and our actions, and how we should evaluate the different candidates and their policies moving forward. So even though I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, I am going to tell you how to vote this Tuesday. Now, with that introduction, maybe that got your attention a little bit for what we're, what we're uh, getting into this morning. So let's get after it. Let's get after it. The primary text that we're going to use this morning is one that is incredibly familiar. I would say whether you've grown up in the church or maybe you haven't been in and around the church that much at all throughout the history of your life. It's a story that is just very well known. Probably next to the parable of the prodigal son, this is one of the most well-known parables that, that Jesus teaches that he gives to his people. Go to Luke chapter 10 for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10 for the parable of the Good Samaritan. And yes, I do believe that the parable of the Good Samaritan has instruction for how we vote and and can guide our engagement in the political process. So let's check it out together. Go to Luke chapter 10. Now, as you make your way there, and it's going to be on the bottom of the screen here in just a moment, moment, I want to give the context for what it is that we're about to read. Because Jesus gives this parable in response to a question that he gets from a a religious leader uh, of the day. Now, this religious leader was actually trying to trap Jesus. And he wanted him to get in a theological conversation. And then maybe he could lead Jesus to say something that he could uh, twist and say that this was heretical or this was blasphemous. So he's trying to to trap Jesus and to get him into this theological conversation. He asked Jesus, "Um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus puts it back on him and says, "Well, well, you know what's written. Uh, how, how do you, you know what's written in the law? How, how do you apply it? And the man says that he, he thinks we are to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus says, you're right. That's correct. Do this and you will live. And let me say this. We believe that at Grace City. Like we, we believe uh, that in his answer, we believe Christ's uh, instructions there to, to do this and you will live. Because we know that when we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that means we're trusting in him. We've put our faith in him. That means we believe in him. When he says that 
We are sinners in need of a savior, that we are to confess that sin, repent of it, and, and turn to him and trust in him. And so we're gonna believe and trust in the Lord to send that savior in his son, that we're gonna believe in, in his son's sacrifice for us as he is God in the flesh. So when we're loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are believing in him, we are trusting in him, and we're obeying his words and his teachings in our lives. And so we, we, we believe wholeheartedly in this. Once more, we believe that when we love God in this way, we're also responding to the love that he has shown to us. And so then that is expressed in our actions. It's going to impact uh, how we love our neighbor. And it shows that we have been transformed by God's love in our lives. So believing this, doing these things is, is, is absolutely, we, we believe it wholeheartedly what Christ is teaching here, that we do this, do this and we will live because it's, it shows a life that's been transformed by faith and acceptance of God and his grace in our life. All of that is encapsulated in, in this uh, religious leader's uh, answer to this question. Now, even though he has the right answer to this question, you get the indication from the text that maybe he doesn't understand everything that that entails uh, because he, he's, he continues the conversation, but it's interesting. He focuses in on the second command. It, it's almost as if, and I'm kind of making this assumption, it's almost as if he's assuming that, well, I can love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, but what I'm concerned about is the second one, loving my neighbor as myself. And so he's wanting some more clarity around that one. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And perhaps thinking, this has got to be limited, right? Like, there's, I mean, is, is it everybody? And so maybe he's expecting Jesus to say, well, your neighbor is other Pharisees or scribes or religious leaders just like yourself. Or maybe, maybe it expands a little bit to where his neighbor would be other Jewish people that have this zeal and, and, and devotion to the Lord. Maybe that's what, where, where Jesus would take this next. But you almost get this sense that when he asks this question, it's as if he's trying to limit those whom he's responsible to love. Like he's trying to limit those to whom he is responsible for. When he says, who is my neighbor? He, he, he wants to know who is his neighbor so he knows exactly who to love and who to love in this way. And that will also let him know who he, who he can exclude and who he can ignore and who he can leave out. So he asks this question and it, it feels, it just kind of seems like he's looking for an excuse, but he's going to be left without one after the answer that Jesus gives. Because the answer that Jesus gives is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Okay, so we have this story, right? It's a parable of the Good Samaritan. You've probably heard this you know, who, may, who knows how many times before. But we get the story, right? The priest and the Levite, they come up on this man who's been beaten with an inch of his life. He's left for dead. It's not looking good. But these two guys see him. They see the need. They see that he's hurt. And what do they do? They pass by on the other side of the road. Now, there's all sorts of theories as to why they would pass by on the other side of the road. Now, again, this is a parable. It's not something that, you know, actually happened, although it, 
when you, it could, it's kind of a realistic situation. And so that's probably why Jesus is using it to teach. But uh, uh, again, so there's this discussion, if you will, about why they, why they wouldn't stop. And one of them is around the fact that they're a priest and a Levite. They, they work in and around the temple. So if they go and they help this man and he's actually dead, then it would defile them and make them ceremonially unclean and unable to perform their duties at the temple. And so maybe they don't go help the man because they don't want to defile themselves. And so there's a fear that they would be unclean. Or, or maybe they don't want to help the man because uh, they feel like maybe, he's, maybe it's a trap. Like maybe, maybe he's bait. Like he was attacked by a group of robbers before and they left him there and now they're waiting. So if somebody else comes and helps them, then they'll get attacked by whoever, you know, hurt this man or robbed this man in the first place. And so maybe they don't because they don't want it to happen to them. They're, they're acting out of fear that, that the same thing could happen to them, that they could be beaten and left for dead as well. Or still maybe there are some that think, well, maybe they just think that the guy deserved the beating, <laughs> that, that his, something happened and he's just reaping full-hearted, full-hearted decisions. And so they just leave him to his own mess and, and they just pass by on the other side. Now, you can have that discussion about which one of those it might have been, been, but at the end of the day, none of them stopped. None of them stopped to help. They don't think it's their role to help the man who's been wounded. The priest, the Levite, they seem and they move to the other side. They don't feel the concern. They don't feel the concern. They do not feel as though this work falls to them. They don't feel as though God put them at that place, in that time, at that moment to meet that need. But no, they view the moment and they view the man only through the lens of themselves, their needs, their concerns, their fears, and they ignore the man and they walk by on the other side of the road. But not the Samaritan. Not the Samaritan. Now, I think like as, as soon as Jesus says Samaritan, I imagine, and again, I'm imagining this, so I'm projecting onto the text a little bit. Like, I imagine an audible gasp from the crowd when Jesus is telling this story. When he's like, you know, but a Samaritan. As he's like, I think we're like, oh, really? A Samaritan, Jesus? And the reason I imagine that is because there was considerable racial and ethnic and even religious tension between Jews and Samaritans. You see, Samaritans were people that uh, their forefathers were part of the Israelite nation, but they had intermarried with other, uh, with other foreign people groups. And with that, some of them had welcomed in worship of false gods and goddesses. So there's a mixed bloodline with a mixed religious history there with, with some of the Samaritans, or they're not you know, worshiping the one true God the way that the Jewish people w- would say and prescribe. And so just all of that made a recipe for there to be racial, ethnic, and religious tension really hatred and animosity between Jews and Samaritans and Samaritans and Jews. Like that was the dynamic. But yet here in this story, Jesus has just introduced the Samaritan as the hero. And he is. He is, he is the hero in the story, right? Because the Samaritan, he looks at the man who's wounded. He looks on him and takes pity on him, has mercy on him, spends his own resources, spends his own provisions to get him back healthy, to get him back on his feet. Why? Because this is what love required him to do. It's what love required him to do. This was loving his neighbor as himself. This, that, 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 like, this is loving your neighbor as yourself, right? If he's, because if he's in this situation, if, you were, if we were in this situation, we would want the same thing done for us. This is taking their concerns, taking the concerns of the other, taking their concerns, taking their situation, taking their hardship, taking it on yourself and acting for them in that moment, 
advocating for them in their time of need, showing solidarity with the one who's in trouble, with the one who's not experiencing peace or wholeness or a right relationship with the world around them. But that's what this Samaritan does. That's the action that he takes. That's how he responds to the man that's been beaten. And then Jesus puts that story and he puts that before his inquisitor, right? He puts that before the religious leader who's trying to trap him. And Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think was the neighbor? Actually, let's read it together. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? That's the priest, Levite, or Samaritan. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Quite the question from Jesus. Which one of these three was the neighbor? Now, again, remember, the, the religious leader wanted to know at the beginning who was his neighbor. He wanted to know who, who is and who isn't the neighbor. But here, the, like, the script gets flipped. Like Jesus gives the story, and then he looks at the man, then he looks at the religious leader and says, who was the neighbor? Who was the one who acted in a loving and compassionate way? And he has to respond, he has to answer, and he can't even bring himself to say Samaritan because there was that much tension. He says simply the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, follow his example. Go and do likewise. Translation, be the neighbor. Be the neighbor. Be the neighbor and love and serve others as yourself. Be concerned for the other. Not, not, not just concerned for, be an advocate for them. Take their concerns as your own. Take their needs on as your own. Take their financial situation on as your own. Take their health on as your own. Go and do likewise. Now look, we've, we have been in this text three, maybe four times over the past four years. This text comes up a lot at Grace City. And, and, and whenever we're here, we always talk about how the Samaritan in the situation he loves with a type of delivering love in that he enters into the situation of the other. He enters into the situation of the man who's been wounded and then he delivers them into healing, into hope, into restoration, and into peace. The Samaritan does all these things as he loves and serves the one who's been wounded. But we must remember this is exactly how Christ has loved us. This is what Jesus has done for us. He enters into our situation and took it on as his own. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus enters into our situation, takes our sin onto himself, and what does he do? He delivers us into healing, into hope, into restoration, and into peace with his heavenly Father. Like That's how we've been loved as citizens of the kingdom of God, and it's how we are to love and serve others as a citizen in these United States. Like Again, the religious leader's question at the start showed that he was making the assumption it's up to others to prove themselves a neighbor to me. It's up to others to prove themselves a neighbor before he would respond. They had to qualify as a neighbor before he would take action. Jesus here with this response makes it clear, no, 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 no. That's not the way it happens in the kingdom of God. It's not the way it happens in the kingdom of God. That's not how citizens in the kingdom of God are called to act. No, we have the responsibility. We have the calling to be the neighbor, to act in solidarity with to love with a delivering love that enters into the situation of others and helps them experience peace and mercy in their life. 
And so with this parable from Jesus, he commands this religious leader and all who are listening, and especially those who claim to follow Christ, he commands us to go and do likewise. That's why and that's how I can definitively stand before you today and tell you how to vote when you go in the voting booth on Tuesday. When you go into the voting booth, you need to ask yourself, is my vote, is it driven by me trying to protect self-interest? Am I trying to protect my ideals of a society, my party platform, my political, or you know, my party's political influence? Am I driven by those concerns or am I driven by acting and voting out of love and concern for my neighbor? One of those is the way of the priest and the Levite. The other is the way of the Good Samaritan. Now, I understand maybe a pushback to that might be, or, or a question might be, well, if I go in and I vote, I'm, I'm voting for the one that I think is going to, you know, have the best policies that will then in turn, you know, hopefully benefit the city, state, and nation to where, you know, everybody is blessed, where it's good for everybody. It won't like a rising tide lift all ships. And so, like, don't, uh, isn't that, you know, if I do that, then yes, I'm voting out of love and concern for my neighbor. Okay, but here's the deal. All right. If you attempt to vote out of love and concern for your neighbor, you got to ask yourself, are you truly listening to them? Are you listening to them in such a way to where you're not assuming you know what's best for them, but are you listening to them in such a way to where you can accurately enter into their situation? And in so doing, see the different perspectives, see the policies, see the issues from their viewpoint rather than your own. And, and hey, some of them might align, some of them might not. But have you done the work to listen to those who are different from you in a different situation, in a different experience, with a different context, and then thought, what would it look like for me to love them with my vote? How can you love them with your vote? And then you can even ask a harder question of yourself. Okay, if those... If those living with economic insecurity or battling sickness and disease, if those whose rights are routinely overlooked or not acknowledged, if they could see how you voted, if they could see you know, who you pulled the lever for, would they feel loved? Would they feel valued? Would they feel heard? Would they feel advocated for? Would they feel as though you love them as you are loving yourself? You see, that's, that's the politics of the Good Samaritan. That's the politics of the Good Samaritan. And look, it, it, it's really not anything new. Like, I'm, 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 not, I'm not bringing any, this isn't earth shattering. This isn't like a new teaching that I'm putting before us, right? We are called and commanded repeatedly by Christ to place the concerns of others before our own. And so often we apply this to every other arena, yet we fail to apply it in the voting booth. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, like, it's a powerful story, Right? It's, it's one of the most powerful and transformative illustrations of this command of loving your neighbor as yourself. And we see the good that it brings in this world. We see it and we're like, yes, this is who we're called to be as citizens of the kingdom of God. This is how we're called to live. This is what we should be known for. And then again, we apply this to so many different areas of our life. But I'm telling you, it's what's needed as citizens of the United States, even when we go in the voting booth, that we would vote with this on the forefront of our minds. It's, and, and like, it has to be there. We can't lose sight of it, that this is our call as Christ followers. The, the Apostle Paul gives a warning 
in Colossians 2, 6 through 8, um, the church, had, there was some deceptive and false teaching that was making its way into the church. And, and, and he's writing a letter to address that. And he says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you are instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of this world, rather than in accordance with Christ. There's a warning there that he gives. And it goes hand in hand with why I wanted the Good Samaritan to be our text. I, I wanted the Good Samaritan to be our primary text because it's, in, it isn't because it's incredibly familiar to us. And it's familiar to us because it is a truth that we have received from Christ from the beginning. It is like this, the teaching of this parable and its context, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors as yourself. Like that's at the core of our faith and, and, and how we are to love and serve those around us. Because again, it's how Jesus has loved and served us with his redeeming sacrifice. And so now, okay, out, out of gratitude to him, out of gratitude to him, after being rooted and established and anchored in him, we are to walk in that way. Follow after him and his commands and how we love and serve others. Because when we do, that's countercultural. Talked about it week one, right? That, that's, that's living as a light into this world. That's living as salt of the earth. And also what it does is it helps us reject anyone that tries to capture our allegiance or our loyalty through empty philosophy or empty deception. Or the different debates and arguments and counterpoints and counter like. It helps us reject being held captive by those things and keeps us grounded in the gospel. Helps keeps us grounded in knowing what our actions are to be driven first as citizens of the kingdom of God and then second as a citizen of these United States. So again, I'm going to tell you how to vote on Tuesday. When you walk into that voting booth, Know that as a citizen of the kingdom of God, your first responsibility is to love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. Then, as a citizen of the United States, you pull the lever, you mark in the bubble in such a way that shows your love and concern for your neighbor. That you've entered into their situation. That you've taken it, taken it on as your own. That you are aligned with and show solidarity with them and their plight. That's how you vote. Come Tuesday. So I guess in a way I am I am telling you who to vote for. I, I am telling you who to vote for and how to vote. Whether it's Trump or Biden, Espy or Smith, I'm telling you, vote for your neighbor. Vote for your neighbor and for their concerns. And just just think. Just think if that's the story that was told. Like, let that be the witness of the church this election season. Let that be the story that's told on Wednesday, that Christ followers went into the voting booth and they didn't act out of self-interest. They didn't act out of fear or division or hostility, but they remembered their calling as citizens of the kingdom of God and they voted in such a way that loved their neighbor as themselves. God help us. I pray it be true come Wednesday morning. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for your timeless truths. This parable of the Good Samaritan, God, it's transformative and it's powerful and it's, um, it's commanding. 
And it's, it, it's in, in so many ways, Lord God, it is, instru- it is instructive for so many different facets of our life. And God, I pray that we would keep it at the forefront of our minds in and through this election process. God, help us be a people that elevate the calling of the kingdom, that elevate the virtues and ethics of the kingdom of God above anything and everything come Tuesday. So we're not held captive to different smaller temporal arguments, Lord God, but we remember our calling and the role that we are to play as disciples of you, as ambassadors of your kingdom, as messengers of the hope of the kingdom of God, Lord God. Help us go into the voting booth And love in such a way and vote in such a way to where we show our love for our neighbor and we follow your commands to place others' needs and concerns above our own. God, help us be a people who are generous with our love and with the way that we love and serve those around us. Lord God, give us clarity, give us wisdom, give us guidance, and give us peace. And God, help us on Wednesday. Help us on Wednesday, no matter what the outcome might be, be united as your church, pointing all to the hope and truth that we have in you. God, we love you, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how you entered into our situation with a delivering love and made the way possible for us to live as citizens in the kingdom of God. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.